title is, uh, and the, the depth of violence, the pervasiveness, pervasiveness of the problem. And what I should have added to create some interest in, in the topic is that it's, I'm actually doing an analysis of Romans 7 to 8. And uh, in light of a psychoanalytic perspective, um, and even that may sound strange. It's not, uh, when I say a psychoanalytic perspective, it is the uh, uh, psychoanalysis philosophy and cultural theorists, uh, which I will, I'm going to lay that out a little bit. But the problem of human violence, we often think of violence as simply something we do outwardly. But clearly it's a problem that begins within each of us. But I believe we can state it and we can describe it in a stronger way than this. And this is, this is an idea that is pervasive today. In many places other than in theology, and so I'm incorporating an idea, I think it's in the Bible, but the idea is that we are as human subjects constituted in violence. That violence, in fact, is definitive of us given a particular definition of sin um, and what I'm going to this whole you know if you ask me at the beginning of this paper what's your definition of, of violence I'm going to equate violence and sin but the reason why will I think become obvious as I uh, as the paper unfolds um, first of all just kind of set the general uh, atmosphere uh, I think that you could locate the, the sort of idiom that I'm working in in a postmodern understanding. And that doesn't really convey much. But specifically, uh, if you've ever read Jacques Derrida or uh, Jacques Lacan. And Derrida, of course, was a philosopher. He's now passed away. And Lacan uh, is long gone. But the primary interpreter of Lacan in the United States and in the English-speaking world is a man actually from the former Yugoslavia named Slavoj Žižek. Are you familiar with Žižek? Okay. Um, and Žižek, I think, would say of himself what, you know, that he is just, uh, I think he would identify himself as simply as uh, uh, reading the texts of Jacques Lacan. And he, he said, you know, if I, if I, in my perfect world, what I would do is be a monk in my cell, poring over the texts of Jacques Lacan. <laughs> and Lacan, of course, is uh, working primarily with the texts of Sigmund Freud. Um, if you had to pick, you know, the, the Derry, many people think Derrida is difficult. But actually, Lacan is usually wins the, the prize for obscurity. But what I'm doing with Lacan, if you're if you're not familiar with you, if you're a little bit familiar with Derrida, the Derrida, Derrida's philosophical project was called deconstruction, and it was aimed at understanding how self consciousness is divided, already or already conceived in difference, so as to arrive at the root problem of violence. Um, identity through difference. I don't know, does that phrase mean anything to you? The idea that if you have, you know, the way that you identify two things, for example, and Derrida does a reading of Genesis 3, 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do you identify the good over and against the evil, the evil over and against the good? That you do identity in language through these opposed pairs. And of course, what's being posited, and this is his point about all language, is that there, you're positing some sort of absolute difference that's already, it cannot possibly be an absolute difference because you're comparing them. And so the two opposed pairs need one another. Now this, is all, this all gets pretty abstract in Derrida because he's, he's dealing with philosophical texts and he's just sort of demonstrating this again and again. Um, but his idea is that in the very construct of human language, there is a violence or an injustice that's built in. And so his whole project, you know, the word difference, and, you know, he misspells it, uh, is to, to get at justice. But his idea is that there's a relentless pursuit of justice that it is an impossibility to achieve. You never really arrive at justice. Now, Derrida is sort of illustrative of what Lacan is doing. And you could say what all of these, you know, why, why are these guys so obscure? You know, you think Heidegger, Derrida, why, why, you know. They, and I think that part of it, that, that we're clearly going through a shift. But the way that we could describe this shift, there is a turn to human existence, per se, as a point of interest. The way that Kierkegaard would put it, there's a turn to human subjectivity. So if you read the text of Kierkegaard, same thing. You're kind of lost in the... But he's doing something very peculiar. By the way, all these guys are very familiar with Kierkegaard. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're working. So you could say that the, the postmodern turn, and the, the, the word is almost so useless we shouldn't use it, but um, is a turn to human existence. But I would say with Lacan this is even more true because what I've just said about Derrida... Lacan and Zizek are going to do with the human subject. That is, they're going to find this same system, but they're going to find this system within human subjectivity. And don't, don't get nervous here on me, because I'm going to locate this in Scripture in the Apostle Paul. Uh, I think, and they do the same thing. In other words, Lacan gives us a reading of Romans 7 and 8, and Zizek gives us a reading of Romans 7 and 8. And both, then Zizek's going to say, well, I'm just a Pauline materialist. Which, you know, think about that a minute. Uh, he's an atheistic Marxist materialist who calls himself an, a Christian. Um, but he's, uh, he's a Christian of a very particular, of a Romans 7 kind. Um, Martin Heidegger figures into this a little bit. He's not important today, but but the, I think it's all of the same turn. You know, this was a Heidegger. Uh, Lacan approached both Derrida and Heidegger because there was the, they all are doing something. There is a turn to hermeneutics. There is a turn to the human subject, and you know Lacan recognizes this. But neither you know he approached uh, Derrida, and Derrida wanted. You know, Lacan is this, he's a kind of bizarre figure. If you go on YouTube and look up Jacques Lacan and see the videos, you'll get the idea why probably no, you know, he's kind of a pop cultural figure, very much like Zizek is today. And so Zizek gets dismissed, you know, in some, in serious academic circles, I think mistakenly. You know, the New Yorker several years back, they said, well, this guy is a total clown. 
that no one would ever write a dissertation on what he's doing because it makes no sense. I've written a dissertation on Slavoj Žižek. Um, I don't, I'm surely I'm not the first, but uh, in, in theology. Uh, because he actually is saying something, and Lacan is actually saying something, but they're very obscure. But I think not as it's sometimes portrayed. I don't think it's that they're purposely obscure. I think that, you know, if you've read, are you familiar with Thomas Kuhn's whole idea of a paradigm shift? That we're clearly going, you know, he, what Kuhn says about Einstein is that Einsteinian science is more akin to a pre-Newtonian understanding than to uh, a modernist or a Newtonian. And I think you could say the same thing about what each of these thinkers, they're doing something rather difficult, obscure for us. In other words, we almost need to be retrained in our thought patterns because we're so saturated in a modernist sort of perspective. Um, and, I, and, and the fact that I'm going to, I'm going to go to the New Testament here in a minute. We'll look at Romans 7 and 8. I think that is helpful. I think that we'll begin to pin down and we can begin to talk very concretely, which both, you know, both uh, Zizek is uh, uh, working, but completely within, you know, he's saying that uh, his theory is just all there in Paul. And in fact, would say to be a true atheist today you have to pass through Christianity. And he's saying that because of his reading of Romans 7. Now, I'm a Christian. I'm not, I'm not promoting atheism. But I, would, I agree with Zizek's analysis that there is a perverse understanding of God that we get in modernity. And it shows itself in readings of the New Testament but particularly in readings of Romans chapter 7, um, that, um, that people are going to read this in what Zizek, and I'll explain this in a minute, will call a perverse fashion. You know, what a, if you've ever done any counseling or psychoanalysis, you've heard the word pervert. A pervert is a particular, a very particular thing, and that is a word that Paul uses. And so Zizek is saying there is this perverse understanding of God in, I think he would identify, you know, evangelical Christianity. The, and what he's saying is a very specific thing about what Paul means in Romans 7. Let me just a, a little bit, you know, why is Zizek so obscure? Partly because his, most of his uh, uh, talks, then they are talks, they're transcriptions in which he's working with Freud. And so Zizek says the same thing about Lacan. He said, I didn't understand Lacan uh, until his son, it was actually Lacan's son-in-law that Zizek studied with in France. And, and so his whole opening to uh, Lacan is through uh, Zizek's son-in-law, but also through Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And so Zizek is bringing together two realms of thought. He's bringing together a philosophical, you know, German idealism. And he's reading, but he's reading Hegel in a very peculiar fashion. But again, you don't need to get too, you know, think here of Hegel's dialectic identity through difference. You know, it's the same basic structure. Derrida's just doing Hegel. Uh, they're, they're, in a sense, we're all doing, we're always doing Hegel. But I think we can do better than Hegel. 
And I think we can do better than, in order, Zizek will say, it will also just identify himself as Hegelian. So the the whole the I'm trying I'm trying to ease into this a little bit because the it, it's going to sound strange to you at first, but uh, and what I'm saying is that we're working in an idiom that even though it's the New Testament, I think that this way of looking at the New Testament is largely lost to us in theology and in modernity because you know what is the I've just said what is the paradigm shift? It's a turn to human existence. It's a turn. You know, in Kierkegaardian terms, to human subjectivity. Uh, so, if you even broach the subject, you know, the unconscious, human sexuality, neurosis, personality in its various disorders, uh, the and violence, our topic today. People in a modernist perspective read, and they don't presume that the New Testament is addressing those things. That's. You know, and the interesting thing here that if you go back and you read like somebody like Irenaeus or you read the early church fathers, they never presumed that the you know that Irenaeus is especially very interesting on this, his whole take. And so I mean literally that we need to go through a kind of paradigm shift and a and a, and a, a realization of a different idiom. I think that would take us closer to the understanding of the New Testament. Uh, psychoanalysis itself, you know, what, what is happening with Sigmund Freud, um, if you, you know, is a turn to the human subject's uh, psychology. I, by the way, I'm not a Freudian, I, but there are aspects of Freud that are very interesting and very theological. And many people have noticed this about Freud that even though he's an atheist, yeah, but what he's doing, he's working in a realm that is Hebraic. The whole idea of language being, you know, key. And so if you would describe the difference between Freud and Lacan, Lacan is taking what, you know, Freud was always very interested in being a scientist. Uh, he, he wanted to be the Darwin of the mind. And so he keeps returning to uh, even, you know, a kind of almost a biological. And what Lacan does with Freud, he takes it and he transports it all into the realm of language. So that it, in this sense, I think that we've entered back into the realm of theology. In other words, this is, what I'm saying is, this is properly a theological topic. The idea of the sickness of the soul, the sick, you know, why are we neurotic? Why are we, you know... Uh, so much of that, I think, are things that are addressed by the New Testament, but we read the New Testament in such a fashion that it is not made to address human subjectivity or human interiority. So all of this, I'm just giving to begin to address the topic at hand, and that's the anatomy of violence uh, and a, as a constitutive of a failed humanity. So first of all, I think it requires that we take up an idiom and we enter into a realm that we were, we've... It took me... By the way, I was a missionary in Japan for 20 years. And so it took me about 20 years to do this shift. And I, it, it wasn't my education, it wasn't... But once you go into a different culture and you realize that the patterns of... You know, we, we just sort of instinctively think that the patterns of our thought are just a shared universal understanding.
Um, what Zizek, Lacan, what they're all going to say is that uh, that there is this in the New Testament uh, an understanding uh, that they claim supports their view of the human psyche, um, which is uh, a complete construct. Uh, uh, Zizek is going to call the ego a primordial lie. That's as good as it gets, by the way. They're not going to. They're not going to give us. You know, even though they're psychoanalysts, uh, so that we need to radicalize. In other words, I'm going to do this, but then I think we, we need to look at their work. But I think the New Testament is even more radical, and maybe in this sense, maybe even more obscure to us. If you think these guys are obscure, yeah. But what I'm saying is, well, we need to even take that a step further. And that maybe not be a very encouraging. So. Uh, but both Lacan and Zizek turn to Romans 7, and especially Zizek does 1, 1 to 7 also, but 1 to 6, but it's also primarily from 7, 7 and following. Uh, and what he's claiming is that he finds here the makeup and the formation of human personality. Um, and in Zizek's view, uh, he, he takes human violence, he's a Marxist, he takes it as a necessity. It's a necessity, it's a necessary part of human subjectivity, but it's also a necessary part of human culture. What I'm going to say is, no, that's not Christianity, that uh, he's missed it. Um, but he's saying that's what Paul is saying. I think he's correct that that is what Paul is saying in Romans 7, 7 until the end of that chapter. But he does not give us a reading of Romans chapter 8. Um, Zizek is not unique in this. That uh, there, We could divide systems of theology. We could divide churches. Uh, we could maybe even individuals in a room. Uh, it, there's not a, a definite. There is. There are predictors, you know, of how you read Romans seven, a particular you know denomination or a particular theological orientation. Some people are reading this chapter as if this is the normal Christian life. This is what it's supposed to be about, and so they're saying there's no real difference between chapter seven of Romans and chapter eight of Romans. Um. And they would say there's no real difference between a Christianity that would read Romans 7 and 8 in this way, and by the way, a Christianity that is violent. Um, that, and you know, my case in point here, wait a minute, Zizek says he's a Romans 7 Christian. He's an atheistic Marxist <laughs> materialist who says he believes everything in Romans 7. I think he can do that. You know, and we, as you get into Romans seven, what you realize, there's really no God there. By the you know the last thing he does cry out, but he, he's already transitioning. And so there's only God as lawgiver. Uh, there's no Holy Spirit. There's no prayer. There's no uh, you know the idea of uh, uh, corporate community. In other words, everything that we associate with Christianity is missing in Romans seven. Um, so the 
I think that a Christianity that takes Romans 7 as normative and which takes and assumes that violence is a necessity is of the same order as an atheistic. In other words, what I would say about American evangelicalism, it's for all practical purposes a, a practice in atheism. And I just mean that in terms, you know, just look at the ethics, the way that this thing is, is the way it functions. So how do you, you know, the, the beginning of Romans 7, 7, I, you know, I did not know what it was to covet, uh, except that the law said thou shalt not covet, or the word there is desire. So the, the thing that is happening in Romans 7, 7, that everybody knows is there's this stylistic difference that there's some 20 uses of the term I in Romans 7, that clearly Paul is relating this I with the fall of man. In other words, the I, he's going to say in Galatians, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. Uh, He's going to, even there in Romans, talk about uh, salvation as a dying of the the eye so that for Paul I think it's absolutely clear uh, and the scholarly consensus I think is with me not that there is an absolute the way I put this the scholarly consensus with which I agree um, is that Paul is recounting the experience of fallen humanity he's talking about Adam He's talking about himself, but he's talking about every I. In other words, this is a universal experience that he's describing in Romans 7. He's pointing back to Genesis 3. If you follow, then this is what many have noticed, and especially in the formation of the I. Are you, do you remember the first sentence that's, that Adam spoke uh, when God comes on the scene in Genesis after the fall? Uh, he says, uh, "He says I heard the sound of you. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself." Notice a pattern there. A lot of eyes, right? Prior to this, in Genesis, Adam and Eve never used the word "I." Subsequent to Romans seven in chapter eight, Paul does not use the word "I." And so just that, just the beginning of it, we've got this stylistic shift. And if you just go through it, you know, the whole topic of it seems to be a picture of the fall of man. And, and so Paul is saying, you know, when Paul uses the word I, he, I think he does mean himself, but he's also using it in a, he's making an argument in Romans about the theolo- you know, the, the, a universal theological uh, uh, case um, so with the formation of the eye you know this is the, the self is given over to death I uh, you know I died I was not aware of what it was and sin deceived me and I died uh, are you familiar with the, the Cartesian cogito uh, I think therefore I am Lacan is quite fascinated with the, just the word I, both in modernity. You know, Descartes is usually considered to be the father of modernity. But what Lacan notices is that there is this functioning 
you know, in modernity, like you have in Romans 7. That Descartes is, you know, Descartes a good Catholic. He's going to find God, but he's going to find God on the basis of his I. That I think, therefore I am, and he uses that as the foundation of uh, the, his entire work. And I would say that, you know, many people are still, by the way, Zizek calls himself Cartesian. But of course, he, he, what he means by that is not what most people mean by being Cartesian. He means that he, he fully understands the, the destructiveness of that identity. So if you, you know, just take the biblical story, you go from Adam and Eve, they experience shame, kind of the dissolution of the self. The Old Testament will picture shame as always connected to death. Uh, you go to Cain, Cain kills. So there's death taken up into the individual's but then they become death-dealing. Do you know the next character, the next, you've heard of Lamech? And Lamech, of course, you know, his, uh, he, he's kind of a, uh, he, he does poetry. But it's murder poetry. You know, I've killed me a young man for wounded me. If Cain would be avenged 70 times, or seven times, Lamech would be avenged 77, 70 times seven. You know, what, is it, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're becoming arbiters. This is, uh, I don't know if you've read Bonhoeffer's Ethics, but this is what Bonhoeffer says about the fall of man, that when man becomes an ethicist, this is a sign of the fall. Because he has become the arbiter rather than the law of God or God speaking. And in a real sense, Lamech has become the embodiment of his own law. In other words, he's going to he's he's the, the, the judge, he's he's the avenger, you know, himself. But I think we could talk about Paul in these same terms that uh, you know Paul will say that I am faultless in regard to the law, and yet I am chief of sinners. Paul is talking about in Romans seven, and this is Zizek's point. Zizek, by the way, is a little confused on the law, so you don't, we don't need to get into his confusion and his contradictions. Uh, I'm just kind of passing over those because he's not a. This isn't his thing. He, he uh, but uh, that Zizek has the idea of the obscene superego. Superego in Freud is, of course, the punishing conscience. You could just say it's the law. But remember that in Freud, when Freud's talking about the superego, the law, he doesn't mean human morality. That's precisely what gives rise to human immorality. Um, This is the death drive in Freud. When Freud writes uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, this is when he posits the idea of the tripartite, you know, the ego, the superego, and the id. And then he posits the death drive. Uh, the death drive is in Zizek and Lacan. That's this, you know, it's the most obscure concept. And they mean for it to, in other words, they're saying the concept itself is obscure. Uh, because, and, and the, the, uh, the very idea of the death drive is this negation of death that is taken up into human personality. Uh, it's not necessarily that man wishes to die. You know, this is where Kierkegaard is actually quite interesting. 
the, uh, Kierkegaard describes it as an incapacity to die. That's precisely what Zizek is saying. And by that again, that's not that they're saying this without being aware uh, of, of Kierkegaard. So, um, so Paul becomes, you know, Paul becomes zealous for the law. You know, think of who killed Christ. Uh, that it is people who are ethical, they're religious, they're the best of people, right? It is not because they're of a lack of law or a lack of morality. It's their zeal for the law that puts Christ on the cross. That might tell us about something, and this is Paul's argument here. You know, in Galatians, he does use himself as part of the illustration. So Paul's point, uh, you know, is that with the rise, and the word, you, you both know enough Greek that you know the word I is just the, if you transliterate it, it's the word ego, right? I mean, that's where, we, that's where Freud's, Freud's getting the word from the Greek. Um, that the, you know, as Freud is going to talk about it, uh, the ego is, the ego and the superego are in this, antagonistic destructive relationship this is Freud's you know Freud had uh, at the beginning of his career everybody said well you're mono instinctual you're saying you know it's all about arrows it's all about sex and Freud himself became dissatisfied that that in fact the this the conflict in the human psyche he thought he began to realize was not explained by human sexuality and so when he hits upon the, the construct of the ego superego, he this is the last phase in Freud, and uh, he he this is and by the way this is the least read part of Freud. The whole you know mostly what you get with Freud is kind of the strange sex you know stuff of the early Freud. The stuff that uh, comes after the Beyond the Pleasure Principle. The next book he writes is the Ego and the Id. It's a very simple book if you ever. Uh, see it, you can pick it up and you can almost comprehend in order to, even though he's working in this strange idiom. Jacques Lacan then is one of the few, there are a few psychoanalysts that take this period of Freud and, and center upon it. In other words, they keep this. Whereas most, if you study psychology for the most part in this country, you're even, it doesn't matter what your what particular brand you're almost always doing an ego psychology. That is the point of psychology. And I would say the point of a lot of Christianity in this country is to save the ego. But what I've just described to you is, well, actually in Paul's picture, this thing is a fiction. This thing is a construct. It's a, it's a, a product of a duality between the law and this thing that, you know, the eye, the and the eye is, is clearly split. Freud writes a book, The Splitting of the, the you know, uh, The Splitting of the Self. Uh, so, uh, in Lacan's explanation, alienation occurs in the sense that the subject-object relationship is taken up into the self. The uh, ego is an object, and Paul is using visual language when he's talking about the ego. He comprehends, he grasps himself this precise the way Lacan refers to it as the mirror stage. 
That is, how do you know who you are? Well, when you're a little kid, you know, you see yourself in the mirror and say, that's me in the mirror. Well, no, that ain't you. <laughs> that's your image. But his point is that, that the ego is this, and this is, again, Lacan is true to Freud. Freud refers to this as the bodily ego. In other words, our, we, you know, Freud's word is we cathect the superego and the ego. And so this is why he's saying alienation is the imaginary, and the imaginary is Lacan's new word for the ego. In other words, he's going to take Freud's three, you know, the ego, the superego, the imaginary is the ego. And it's there in the word. What is he saying about the ego? It's imaginary. It's not real. It's a, it's a visual, uh, uh, you know, gestalt kind of. Um, he's going to say the superego is the symbolic. And why the symbolic? Well, I've already told you because he shifts Freud into language and so for Freud uh, you know Freud was never it's never clear in Freud whether he believed what he was doing uh, was a reality in other words did Freud really believe that the ego and the superego that these were things grounded in some way you could argue both ways uh, I would say by the time Freud comes up with the death drive the step that Lacan makes is natural. It's not doing any damage to Freud to say, oh, this is, this is a fiction. This is a construct. If it's a fiction, if it's a construct, then it can be undone. That we need to undo this dynamic. That never occurred to, to any of these guys. They're not, none of them are saying you can undo this. And that's the radicality then of Paul, I believe, that Paul is going to say, oh no, you can, you can undo the, the entire construct. Uh, but all of them are agreeing, you know, Paul talks about, you know, I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do, I do not do. Uh, that the, According to Paul, control does not exist in the eye. Or, you know, the human agency is, he says, I'm, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin within me, that there is a loss of human agency. Um, that there is an inherent incapacity, the, the way that uh, Lacan puts it, that the ego is like a privileged symptom, the mental illness of man. Zizek says, it is the human project par excellence, but the self-positing nature of this I must be obscured. You know, uh, that, in other words, you, you, what Lacan is saying is there's this primordial lie that is positing, and, and I'm going to come to this, that's the next, actually the third point down here. The whole structure of the ego, superego, the id, in Paul is the ego, the law, you know, or just, and of course when we say law, that's always the question when you're reading Romans. What does Paul mean by law? Well, by this point we know he does not mean either the Mosaic, in other words, for Paul, he means the perversion of the law due to human sin. And I'll, I'll build on this in, in a bit. So, uh, as, he, as, Paul, as Lacan says, and, and I think in agreement with Paul, the I is a being for death. 
In other words, the very birth of this thing, the very, the very construct, is death in Paul's description. And that's what these guys are driving at. That's why they call it you know, the death drive arises with this antagonistic self-relation. So the sec- the, if, we, if we had to say, what are the necessary parts of this construct? Uh, there are two key things in Romans 7. And this is where there's a lot of confusion in theology. The first key thing is there is the law. And, well, what law? Well, I've already said it's not, it's not the law as it's given by God or you know, in either the prohibition in the garden or in Exodus, but it's the law perceived by the one who has already fallen, who is subject to death. And even in the way it's formulated, that when we come to this, this is what, uh, have you heard of uh, Giorgio Agamben? Uh, Agamben, this is, there's all these commentaries coming out on Romans 7. Agamben is, I think he's a complete atheist. Uh, Elaine Badu, complete atheist. <laughs> Guy has a Roman co- you know, commentary on Romans. They're all fascinated with what Paul's doing because they all see there then precisely the same construct that they're encountering in a continental tradition, but especially in Lacan. Um, so if you take Paul's formula for salvation uh, we get an idea of his concept of the eye he says that through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me, in me. so to crucify the I and you know, there's a lot packed into this. I's relationship to this obscene, perverse law must be undone. Uh, the, not, the law is not the problem. Or you know, what we're describing is the interior dynamics of you know. Think you're here. You're, you know, what's the law within? Well, the human conscience that it's been seared, according to Paul. Um, and so. According to Zizek, Paul is at once acknowledging the perverse position and going beyond it. What's a pervert? Paul says, shall I sin that grace may abound? That's a pervert. Is the law sin? That's the pervert. That is, the the pervert is the one who immediately identifies this law as something that he can integrate himself into and establish precisely through its transgression. This part's not, you know, the, his definition. He, Zizek sees two psychoanalytic profiles in Romans 7. He talks about the pervert, but Paul is not being a pervert in Romans 7 because he says, God forbid, he's saying Paul is being a hysteric. You know, and what he means by hysteric is one who's questioning this, this whole construct. Um, and so for Zizek what Paul is wanting to do is avoid the trap of perversion and perversion then is a law that generates its transgression Um, let me give you a reading here I'll jump ahead a little bit on perversion Um, he uses the phrase both in 7-7 and 3-5-8 
let us do evil, shall we do evil, that good may come? And Jesus says that's the succinct definition of the pervert. Do evil. Has anybody ever said to you, we have to do this evil so that good will come out of it? So uh, the subject sides with the law in the attempt to escape its punishing effect.